Dawkins, and I am joined by my ever-exciting and excitable co-host, Stixie Cochran. Hello! And Eddie Webb. Hiya! 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 Was that a chop or a roundhouse kick? Uh, could be both. At the same time? Wow, Yes, okay. very flexible. Uh, so what, not actually very flexible. Uh, what merit would that be in <laughs> Chronicles of Darkness or maybe some kind of edge in Trinity for being able to lash out with all limbs in an actually effective manner at the same time? I, I think it's actually probably a trope from a They Came From movie where um, mm-hmm. it's it's um, athletic stunt double. Oh, okay. Where you've actually got two stunt doubles at the same time. Right. So one's able to hit with fists while the other one hits with feet. Right. Or it's just, you know, creative cutting. Yeah. There you go, it's even better. <laughs> I've been I've been rewatching Buffy recently and it's always interesting kind of going like, oops, a double. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, remember which which film it was. I was watching clips on YouTube going down that rabbit hole uh, again. Uh, for clips from various movies. And there was an action movie I really liked and at one point I think Arnie threw someone through a table. It wasn't Commando. And where that happens, and someone gets impaled. Um, but the guy going through the table obviously had a completely different face to the previous actor, <laughs> but also a completely different hairstyle. Nice. And no. and it wasn't fast enough to obfuscate it. Really, this person mm-hmm. sort of staggered back in theatrical fashion, arms flailing around, doing the uh, Aloha Arn, as it's called in wrestling. And uh, then just went back through the glass table. So you saw them in full view, but that made me think of they came from. It did make me think at some points doing an expendables style they came from would be nice. Oh, that would be fun, yeah. Hmm. They came from the exploding background in the distance in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how are like the both it. of you? Um, I'm doing pretty good for the first time in a while. <laughs> I mean, it's um, March of 2020. What could go wrong? No, don't say that. Right? March. Isn't it March 2020? <laughs> it's always been March. It will never stop being March. <laughs> yeah, for, for some poor arisen, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no. Yeah. The, like, mummy who's cursed to just wake up in, like, March of 2020 over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, just tries to burn through the SACM as quickly as possible to end that year and wake up someone else. <laughs> uh, so we've got an interesting subject for today's episode, and mm-hmm. it is a listener mailbag. I nearly said viewer mailbag, but that would be difficult, unless people open up Podbean and just stare at it and watch the bar travel to the right across the screen. They might I mean, do. They might do. You don't? I, I feel like no one does that. Really? It could be a meditation thing. But I can either way. just enjoy watching the number go higher, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, do either of the two of you have a mantra? No. No? Uh, no, no, I don't no, think don't, so. Don't do any kind of meditation and omen. I'm a good dog. I'm a good dog. I am a good dog. Yeah, that works. I have to say, like, I have, as, as I talked about here before, I have a... Uh, I have ADHD and like meditation is not a thing that comes easily to ADHD people mm-hmm. because every, I thought about this a lot since, like since I was even a kid because my, my dad used to be into like meditation and stuff and like I don't understand how people can quiet their brains. 
Because mm-hmm. meditation for me is just being alone in my head for a period of time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in my head is just a flurry of thoughts that are connecting to weird things and, you know, wishing that there was music or, you know, uh, a podcast in my ear because I, I, I crave stimulation at all times. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm the same in in that regard. If I go out on a walk uh, anywhere nearby, you know, uh, on my lunch or something, I will always have headphones on and I'll always be listening to something. I probably wouldn't go out if it was just to walk around in silence. I just mm-hmm. don't. Um, I, I would almost f- because of the way I'm I'm geared, I would feel like it's a waste of time. <laughs> Which is uh, which is silly, uh, but yeah, I likewise find it very difficult to just sit there and, in in my view, do nothing. What some people would say is resting. I would consider wasting time for myself, not other people. Other people can do it as they see fit, uh, but I, I've always got to have my mind on something. I find. Yeah, the like closest that I come to that is putting on a TV show that I absolutely do not have to pay attention to. Hmm. Like, whether that's, like, kind of a, you know, silly game show type thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, just 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 something where I can, like, listen to it with half an ear and be like, yeah, I'm getting this. This is fine. Yeah. So, like, for years, I always thought, like, if, if I'm trying to do something creative, that I needed to remove all distractions and, and, and isolate and think things through. And over time, both watch, you know, watching as my process evolves, but also reading up on just how our brain works. Um, I, I come to realize that there's something you develop as a creative called a strategic boredom because creativity works best when you are bored, your mind starts kicking into gear, but that is not the same as silence. Um, so like Daisy said, it's like, you know, if you put on a, 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 something in the backgrounds that doesn't, it stimulates your brain enough that you can think about other things. There's actually a, a valid way of doing it. And you're developing and building up that boredom. Whereas like, like you guys said, like if I go on a walk and I don't have anything in, I'm listening to, I, I get bored in the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't. I, I just think about everything mm-hmm. and nothing really gets accomplished, and I get really distracted that way. Whereas if I have, you know, basically my my favorite medium of podcast is two people talking to each other about a, a thing I'm mildly interested in. Um, Do you I listen to pop- your wrong about? No, I don't. I probably should. That's two people who I like very much talking to each other about a thing that you probably know about. But you will learn at least one new fact. Mm-hmm. Right. And that kind of, of stuff is like, so the voices, the susurrus of the voices helps me. Especially with my hearing loss. It's like, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm, I have to listen to every single word. I can kind of just tune it out. And I find that that stimulates my creativity more strongly. In fact, just today I went for a walk and I was listening to um, uh, Writing and Breathing, which is a podcast uh, by Anthony Johnston talking to other writers about the writing process and it's like i know most mm-hmm. of this stuff but you know a little bits in here and i start getting me thinking about my own work and my own writing process it's like oh i can work on this and i start getting some creative drives in a way that i haven't had in probably a year um I, I don't i don't attribute it to that specific podcast so much as i think i'm finally moving out of the the general existential dread i've been living in and finding okay my, my, my boredom is actually starting to kick in again so a uh, mm-hmm. long way of saying that meditation and silence and boredom are all somewhat distinct and a lot of times they get confused for people, particularly by creatives. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very insightful. 
Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm uh, really glad that our listeners uh, asked so many questions about that. They didn't. Um, right, yeah. I, I answer questions <laughs> not asked. That's what well, I'm no. here for. Yeah, but let, let, it's our show. It's not their show. They're not the ones putting all the <laughs> time <them>. in. <laughs> they, don't, they don't record and edit every single week. They just listen and give us their lovely, much appreciated patronage. I love how just... <laughs> Yeah, just every now and then you get really antagonistic toward the listeners. None of that. Like by by the end, you're like, "Oh, reeled in, reeled in, reeled in." <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We love you. We really do. Please don't stop listening. Yeah. Uh, so, shall we get on to these questions that we have been asked? Absolutely. All right. So here's the first one. I'll pitch this one to the group uh, and see who answers first. What are the chances of seeing a new Promethean book or, in general, expansion to the Chronicles of Darkness line? I feel like so many of these questions, the answer is just going to be that's up to paradox. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We would enjoy doing a whole lot of books, but really it's not our brand to manage, you know? Right. So it's it's definitely up to the license holders as to when or what we kind of get to do in the future, um, which is fine, honestly. Like I, I there's there's so many chronicles lines that if they were all moving full steam ahead right now, I'd probably be crying in a closet. And it isn't an interview episode, so you don't need to get in a closet. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean. Also, it's just sometimes we've put out a bunch of books and we feel like that's kind of a good place for the line to be, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Promethean's one of those that I think we have it at a really good spot. We Like, the, the Night Horrors book we put out a couple years ago is amazing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steffi Devan out, outdid herself on on that. And, uh, yeah, no, I just, it, it's, it's I'm, just, I'm just letting it rest for a little bit. I think that Promethean has, has, has earned a chance to rest. But yeah. ultimately, any question about will there be future books in X line that we don't own is up to the owners of that line. Yeah, and and to elaborate further, sometimes it is a case of making a pitch to a company like Paradox, the licensor, and, and hoping it lands. But other times, they have desires uh, regarding a game line or... Um, we, we may be in a sort of holding pattern waiting for a go-ahead in general. So there's lots of potential reasons for why books aren't coming out for a game line. And just as Dixie says, sometimes they mm-hmm. have reached the perfect place uh, where, okay, well, any future book would, to be purely capitalistic for a moment, just not sell well enough to justify creating. So, you know, we have to have our mind on all of these things. And, uh, well, hopefully that answers your question. Unfortunately, we didn't have the name of the questioner in this case, but... Well, I said they could remain anonymous on the forum, so... Okay, well, fortunately, we do not have the name of the questioner in this case. (laughs) (laughs) Ambivalently. Anyway, uh, so Alan Kelly asks a question. Have you ever had an idea for a mechanic or narrative beat that you've realized doesn't fit the project you're working on? I'm going to point this at you, Eddie. Have you discarded the concept, pitched it for a different project, or put it away for a rainy day? Uh, So the short answer is yes, frequently. Um, A lot of how, at least I design, is very iterative. So I'll throw some ideas together and then we'll talk it through or I'll think about it for a while and then I'll pull stuff off and add stuff on and pull stuff off and add stuff on. And 
uh, a lot of times, um, I, I if I don't if I think there's something there, but it's just not working for this project, I will uh, put it away. Um, sometimes the idea is just garbage. It's just, it's just not working. And so it's like, well, then there's no point in saving this. But I do have uh, several Dropbox folders. They're just full of random bits and ideas. Um, and I also have some uh, OneNote pages that are full of random bits and ideas I just jot down. And sometimes they cohere into a project. A lot of times they don't. I mean, like I have... Over the, my 20 years, uh, I, I was the other day I was digging through, like, I have stuff going back into, like, the 90s that I've never actually done anything with. Um, and there's probably a good reason, because they're probably not great. But it's like, well, maybe someday. Um, whereas, uh, I talk about this a lot, but with Pugmire, those were some ideas I've had vaguely involving D&D since probably I started playing D&D in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it was in the back of my head for a long time. And finally, I found the right project to kind of put those together on. Um, but it really... Yeah. Ideas are, frankly, very cheap. Um, uh, if, if you have like, oh, this is a cool mechanic, this is a cool bit, um, those are great and write them down so you don't forget them. But an idea or a mechanic or a narrative beat is just one small piece of a project. There are yeah. many times where I have an idea, I throw it, I, I set, put it down somewhere, I work on another project to come up with a very similar idea, completely forgetting the first one, and then I'll like years later go back, oh, I actually had this idea five years previously, but the idea I developed because it was part of an extant project and had a very specific goal is usually almost always stronger. Um, so ideas are cool and all, but also they're the, the cheapest currency in actually making your project. Yeah. I've, um, mm-hmm. and to, to speak of one that I did end up utilizing, I mean, uh, obviously they came from is probably most well known at this point for quips and cinematics. As mm-hmm. as a mechanic, and I've told the story before, uh, at least one half of this story, where I used to run Halloween themed games for my role playing club, and one of them was uh, All Flesh Must Be Dark Place, which was uh, an amalgamation right. of All Flesh Must Be Eaten and Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, and I used the quotes from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, gave them to the characters, the players, I should say, who were playing the protagonists from dark place to use at inappropriate moments as per the tv show for humor and additional dice so the sort of genesis of that entire quip system that i ended up using and they came from was i introduced that many many years before before i was even thinking about writing role-playing games professionally but i used again in a superhero role-playing game much more recent this was after the idea for they came from a germinated i was running a dc heroes rpg where i would give people bonuses if they could um i printed out if you recall from the batman 1960s tv series all the pow and zap and blam uh-huh. and things like that i printed all those out on colorful pieces of card and uh, and distributed them around the table and again it was if you could use this at a well, hopefully appropriate moment to add some impetus to what you were saying or doing. So a pow when you punch this henchman, you lose it. It's a disposable currency, but it gives you a bonus. So I've always had in mind this uh, kinesthetic, this handout to make your ability better mechanic. I I appreciate that kind of thing in any game. So Mm -hmm. eventually it took the form that it did and they came from. So... Definitely, definitely had had an idea. So, uh, Dixie, next one is going to be for you. And it's from two people, 
Um, and two fact, people. Well, yeah, two people, because we've got the same question in two different forms. Uh, one is from Alain, and Alain says, in the recent years, there have been quite a few changes in how the gaming industry, uh, with community content, Kickstarters, etc. Uh, what do you think will be the next change? We also have a question from Christian Wilson that says, how would you like to see the tabletop game industry evolve over the next five years? Um, do you see trends emerging, etc.? So what changes have you observed and what would you like to see happen is a big one. Yeah, this is hard. Um, I definitely, I was just talking about this to some of our internal folks yesterday. Like I feel like there's been a bit of a swing towards more narrative games recently, Mm -hmm. um, including quite a few games that don't require almost any dice slash mechanics where it's just like, it's a it's a guided imagination tour, and that's super cool. It's a little odd because I'm used to having you know some math in my games, <laughs> <laughs> um, even even like minimal math. But I have I've seen a lot of the narrative stuff happening, um, including with things like the choice of games novels and stuff that that, right. that you're familiar with, Eddie. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's kind of a game, but it's kind of not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I. Honestly, I, I never know. I, I feel like every year or so, some big like Kickstarter or new project will come out that I just didn't even see coming. Yeah. Um, like, uh, what's what's the one that just launched yesterday? The, like, Crow? I'll have to look it up in a minute. I, 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 I tweeted about it. But there's a, a Kickstarter that launched like yesterday that is essentially a futuristic setting um, as if... Uh, Native Americans were never colonized. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, and it exploded. Like, it's it's all over Twitter. Um, it's called Coyote and Crow. And they funded in, like, 45 minutes and um, are now at 136000 of $18,000. And are, like, literally going up as I'm looking at the page. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think a lot of like own voices type stuff has also been coming out recently. Yeah. And I want to see that continue. Like I want to see games about disability from disabled folks. And I want to see games about, you know, queer identity from queer folks. And I want to see games about the black or indigenous experience from those folks. So like, I, 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 I like that we're seeing more of that and I want to continue to encourage more of that. So honestly, the biggest trend as far as the people and the content is that, more diversity, more lifting up of marginalized voices. Um, as far as technology, I honestly don't know. Like, I, I I could see a space for virtual reality gaming. I think that a lot of things that we took for granted as being best in person um, have really been shifted over this past year. Yeah, and we figured out how some things like some things are actually better remote. Some things aren't, but some things are more interesting remote. Um, if, if if nothing else, the fact that you can you know run a stream on Twitch where you're only really dressed from the chest up. <laughs> right. It's not the worst thing. Cause you know, if you look over to my house, I've got to put on real pants. What? I don't like yeah. it. Humans will rapidly evolve to become a trouserless species. <laughs> but yeah, so like I, I, I think that once we come out of the other side of this whole uh, pandemic thing, we're going to see, a big reevaluation in how we think about gaming in person, even gaming at conventions. 
because I was talking to some folks last night and I was like, you know, even if I go to PAX Unplugged this year, which is in December, right? Mm. So we've got mm-hmm. months and months. I don't know how comfortable I'd feel going maskless there. But that could change over the summer. You know, once a bunch of people are vaccinated, like we could actually slowly get used to being maskless again if we're yeah. not like actively feeling ill. But I think that it would be cool if we, you know, shifted to wearing masks if we do feel ill, like they do in a lot of other countries. Um, but yeah, no, that's 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 a hard one, especially over the next five years. Like I'm thinking about everything that's changed since you know 2016. Yeah, good lord. And even just the like language that we've changed using um, and how we talk about certain things. So that's that's a tough one. I don't know if if, if Eddie has any more specifics than I do, but it's rough. I mean. You- you covered a lot of it, but um, having been through a few innovation cycles now, um, one thing I've noticed is that what happens is there's usually a big breakthrough, and then the next wave of innovation is usually some way to normalize is probably the wrong word. Um, but uh, for example, PDFs. Like I was around when PDFs were first just being sold, and initially it was just here's a here's a screen, here's a, a a file that you look at your computer. Uh, and then uh, tablets became huge, and there was uh, a period where, before that, PDFs weren't quite sure. Do we have do we have to format them for a screen? How about printers? You know, like, how do people use these? And then, as tablet use increased, then a lot of PDFs started kind of designing for that um, right. and for other forms. And, and over time, we kind of hit a kind of a standard now. And like, if you buy a PDF game, if it's not formatted like a book, it looks odd to us. Yeah. Um, we've just kind of come to, to, to normalize that. But most of the times, if you have a tablet in portrait mode, it's usually the ideal way of doing it. It's unspoken, but that's kind of how things revolt. Uh, so I think the next big wave is probably going to be similar things on the digital VTC front. Um, right now, we're going through the awkward stage of taking a art form that is primarily designed for being around the physical table and adapting it to VTT, but I think we're going to start seeing mm-hmm. games that are native to VTT. Um, and I think there's a possibility for even start seeing games that launch entirely on VTT and don't necessarily have something that resembles a book that goes along with it. Yeah. Um, the mech game you mentioned, Matthew, uh, is starting to do stuff like Lancer. that. Lancer. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, Lancer. exactly what I was thinking of when you started uh, talking about this. Um, how mm-hmm. it's pretty much all controlled from the character sheet. So as long yeah. as everyone has got a tablet or a monitor in front of them, uh, they and of course they can use VTT for maps and so on, which is helpful for a game like that because there's a certain there's a tactical element to it. But yeah, you don't need a book; it is all embedded in the I guess a virtual console, if you like, of the game. Right. Uh, which is is very smart. Alice is missing is a similar kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because while I have the physical product, you don't need the physical product at all, and it's a game that can be played purely by text and in fact is made to be played by text without any communication any verbal vocal communication so yeah uh, i think that's that's a pretty good estimation for where things might go i also think that there's been a big push um this year especially for accessibility yeah um, whether that's making things, you know, friendly to colorblind folks or making things friendly to people who have hearing loss. Because um, one thing that I, I, I did point out is that online conventions are, as a whole, more more accessible, right? Yep. 
Because you can attend them regardless of mobility issues. You can attend them regardless of distance. Like, you can go to an online con, you know, across the globe for the same price as people who live near the people who are presenting. Yeah. Um, You can also collaborate with more people that might not be able to get to many cons. But that said, there are certain things that you just can't do as well um, with an online con. And that's things like, you know, have interpreters all the time. It would be cool to have those. Mm-hmm. And that made me think about having interpreters at all cons all the time. But I know they're expensive. Like, yeah. Dragon Con has a sign language interpreter. Um, but they only come to panels when they're requested. Mm-hmm. Because they can't do, you know, all the panels. Because at Dragon Con, there's like 50 panels going on every hour. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, like, stuff, stuff like that made me just think a little bit. Um, and I think that a lot of people are thinking about accessibility and design in a way that they weren't. Especially people who don't have a disability mm-hmm. like they're they're actually you know thinking about this in in their design like having fonts that work well with screen readers yeah um which isn't something that i had ever thought about until the past couple of years because it just wasn't something that I, I even knew about mm-hmm. and now in the you know world of like adding alt text to your stuff on twitter things like that it's like oh I, i'm learning about you know screen readers and how those could be used how they might not work with certain fonts and how you need this kind of thing so yeah it's 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 just all stuff that we're all thinking about now mm-hmm Lovely. Okay, I'm going to get on to the next question by from Typhonius Starheart, and I, I will answer this one myself. Uh, and okay. uh, it's if you had the power to do an entirely new Splat Main Supernatural line for Chronicles of Darkness or World of Darkness 20th Anniversary, uh, which is an interesting choice, and could do anything you wanted with no oversight from Paradox, what would you create, and what are some of the features of said Splat Super V? So, is it Grumble Dukes? No. Uh, although I, <laughs> I was thinking of Grumble Dukes, Clan XYZ as well. They need some coverage. They've received far little, far too little coverage. Now I'm tempted to go back on my initial choice. Clan Vagarante <laughs> as well. But no, no. Uh, so actually, I would um, amend an existing splat to have a completely different feel to it. And I can say this with some confidence that I'm not going to be... This isn't going to be a wasted pitch uh, because I'm fairly certain Paradox would not be going in this direction. Um, so, for a while I was thinking about, what would I do with Hunter the Reckoning? If I could do Hunter mm-hmm. the Reckoning 20th Anniversary, what would I do differently? Or a 5th edition for it. And um, before anyone starts saying this is just Highlander, I'm not even a big fan of Highlander, so hear me out. So I like the idea that when Gehenna, the end of the world, happens in the early 2000s, people just stop being imbued. Uh, So the imbued in Hunter are humans who receive essentially blessings from God or angels or some undefinable power to go and hunt creatures and use supernatural powers against them. And yeah, people stop feeling that burst of power. People stop receiving it. And they're no longer given direction uh, as to who to hunt. As far as they're concerned, the end of the world has happened. Maybe the mission has been won, or maybe it was a failure. You don't know. You're sort of lost in a post-war PTSD feel of, well, now I'm all tooled up. Where do I go? What do I do? And so people's powers start fading, which leaves people feeling even more rudderless. I've just been on the front line against vampires and werewolves. I know what the world is like, but now I am on the back foot because some of these enemies I made who I didn't kill 
are going to come after me now and I no longer have my power. Now, where that Highlander X, um, I guess, addition comes in, Highlander-esque, is imbued can give their imbuements to other imbued. You can't get them through killing monsters. Killing monsters does not make you more powerful. But hunters can essentially sacrifice themselves or be killed by other hunters so that hunters can regain their power, become more godlike, and continue their fervent quest to uh, deliver a reckoning to vampires, werewolves, mages, demons, etc., etc. And I like the idea of it because it means you could play absolutely normal, mortal, mundane, Hunter the Vigil-style hunters with tactics who aren't reliant on supernatural power, but you could also play hunters who are hungry and desperate to stay supernaturally gifted and mm-hmm. are basically killing each other if they don't feel they're up to the job. So, you know, you, you've not taken down a monster in the last three months, so I'm going to take your power because I can do it better than you. And you've got entire cults forming around these people of lesser imbued who are prepared to give up their lives so that you can take their imbuement. Um, so that would be what I would do with Hunter in an ideal, mythological, never-going-to-happen world. Uh, so that would be <laughs> my, my addition to the world of darkness. So you become, like, Hunter vampires? <laughs> also yeah. Highlander? Yeah, yeah. Um, without all the quickening stuff, I don't think you would need... I don't know whether Hunters would feel the drive to kill each other like you get in Highlander. I don't think that would be necessary. I think it would just be a discovered thing in the canon that when a hunter kills another hunter they can inherit the power and by doing so it creates an entire strain of rather uh, homicidal hunters um, who could be positioned as antagonists or they could be protagonists or it could be an option but either way it, it blends some of the things I like from vampire with as you say the sort of power consumption the cannibalism to gain greater strength uh, while also it has what I really like, that idea of coming back from the front line and your world can never be the same, but the mm-hmm. enemy is still mm-hmm. out there. You know, you, you, you don't know if your mission was successful because God certainly isn't coming down to say, well done, you, you can now ascend to heaven. Nope, you're still stuck at home where it's constantly raining and it's always dark and the monsters are growing in number again. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Highlander, someone pointed out to me the other day that if you watch the original Highlander film like halfway through, if you don't watch the first part of it, and you were told one character is Scottish and one character is Spanish, <laughs> you'll be mad when you realize which is which. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, is, um, it is a very curious movie where you have a Frenchman playing a Scotsman and a Scotsman playing a Spaniard wielding a... Uh, katana, was it? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. something like that. It's right. It's... it's Gloriously ridiculous. What is it that you are eating? Uh, no, no, it's a what? No, um, what are you eating, Lama Cloud? Yo, this is the agis. It is the sheep's stomach filled with the odds and the barley. This is all oh, that sounds disgusting. It is a Scottish delicacy. Maybe you have not heard of it in Spain. Um. Anyway, <laughs> this dramatic reading from Highlander brought to you. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a theatre here. Gal Rukin asks and pitches to the group, once Adventure gets published, is it possible that we'll see an actual play of it on the podcast? Anything's possible. I mean, well, uh, yeah, I mean, anything's possible. We've actually been 
talking internally about um, how we do actual plays. Because um, I mean, we had fun doing this, the Scion and the Trinity ones, but, you know, maybe find different ways of doing that. Maybe inviting other people on to run for us. We're still falling it over. Um, but I will say we wouldn't necessarily wait until it was published to consider an adventure one. Um, uh, one of the things that we have found valuable is making sure we do, we do actual plays like that. It's allows you to immediately go off and do a thing. Um, and usually if the book's published, then it's very simple. It's like, oh, Trinity's out. I like, I like sound this game. I'm going to go buy Trinity. But with things like Backer Kit, um, we can also get people to pre-order. So um, it's not necessarily publishing being the requirements before we consider actual play. Uh, but there is some strategy involved there. And also, um, uh, just full disclosure, uh, our numbers on the actual play episodes aren't as high as some of our other episodes. So that's something we need to handle. The way we've been doing it is maybe not the best way, you know, running it every three or four months. So it is perhaps maybe not the best way of handling how we do that. So Yeah, uh, we've like talked about maybe just sitting down and playing for like four hours and then putting that mm -hmm. into maybe a couple different episodes. Right. Um, just like a like a two parter or three parter. Uh, yeah. Probably the better way to do it because we, frankly, I forget what we did last time. Every time, if we yeah. wait weeks before we between when we play, I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm like, what's happening? So like, only the kind of funny stuff sticks out to me, which right. is why with the last one, I was like, I was like, okay, there's a kidnapped person, but also Matthew went on a bunch of dates, right? Um, and that's like, <laughs> that's like literally like what I could remember at at, at any given time. Um, yeah, never mind the kidnapping. Right. Uh, yeah, no. Moby Dick was funny. Yeah, no, that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, and let's be honest, I mean, I think uh, of the three of us, uh, none of us are particularly avid actual play watchers or listeners. And that, I don't think that's a, an insult to people who do actual plays, no matter what form they take. It's just, it's a very selective medium that not everyone gets on with. Some people... Mm -hmm just don't jive with watching other people play and or listening to in, in our case. So it's understandable that our numbers would be down for those episodes. But yeah, finding a way of getting them to a broader audience or delivering them in a way where we can remember what's going on from session to session would probably be sensible. But yeah, I and think Adventure, Adventure is a fantastic game that is well suited to audio drama. So No, totally. And also, I mean, uh, I brought the numbers thing just for, for context, but to be super clear, in case someone's confused at this point, we don't curate our content for numbers, as you can tell by the sometimes 20 minutes of bullshit before we actually get to our <laughs> topics. Um, but it is something like if we're going to devote three episodes to something, that's when we start going, okay, well, maybe we need to find a different way of doing it. So the numbers are just kind of more indication of we could do this better rather than we're never going to do this. Yeah, totally. Also, I'm mad that Matthew skipped me on the last question. I had I, I I spent the whole time you were talking thinking of my answers. Well, I tell you what, we can we're going to return to this mailbag because there's no way we're going to get through all these questions. I thought we were, um, but I think it's a question that we could return to each time, and because I think that's an exciting one. So let's keep it in mind. We'll keep Typhonius's question here for the next time we do a mailbag, which may be as all soon right. as next week. We never know. Um, so coming straight from the Republican Party, we have Senile Philosophy, who is asking... <laughs> there wow. goes, we don't put our politics on the podcast. 
It's all right. I'm not American. Uh, so, Senile Philosophy asks, if you could make a licensed game for any IP, what would it be? So, Dixie, as I left you out, I know we've spoken about doing licenses of, you know, dream licenses before, but what would your dream license be right now? Uh... Gosh, it, it, it remains always uh, kind of a toss between things like She-Ra, Gem of the Holograms, uh, things things that I liked as a child that have, like, She-Ra especially, the reboot was amazing, and I would love to do a She-Ra game. Um, but also, in the more adult side, Kashield's Dart, um, and also my Magical Girl game that I talked about, which, if I could do a licensed game, that would be cool, but... You know, I think the 2000 Taylor Moon role-playing game just has it covered, even though it's ridiculous mechanically. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think we've got a bit of time then. So, Eddie, uh, you've got your uh, magical wish to have any license you, you want right now. What would it be? Um. So the answer most people would expect, uh, I'm not going to give, uh, because I don't, you don't have to do a Sherlock Holmes license game. It's public domain now. You can just... Do whatever you want with Do- it. Doesn't mean the Doyle estate won't come after you. <laughs> uh, I think I've been pretty on record in my opinions of the Conan Doyle estate, um, which are not good for those of you who don't know. But um, honestly, if, if I could make a, a licensed game, um, I, I think Transformers, I, it, it, it sounds obvious, but I mean, there's a lot of interesting depth there that can be really interestingly explored. I mean, it's not so, just... So it's more than meets robots. the eye, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. funny. It's, 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 you would say it's, uh, <laughs> the game about robots is in disguise. <laughs> um, but I mean, it is more than just red robots punching blue, purple robots. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of things about uh, what does a war that's been going on for millions of years do to your psyche? Um, you know, what do, what do you do when you... you a war is so bad that it devastates your home and you can't live there anymore. I think there's some really interesting depth that could be found in a game like that. I'm also, character creation would just be fun. Oh, yeah. It's like, I'm a car and he does this thing and that could be fun. It could be tons of fun, yeah. I think you mean I'm a bat who turns into a cassette tape. Right. Well, I mean, obviously for, for me, but yes, for you, it would be, there are, as we discovered, <laughs> at least two different bat-based characters you could choose from. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay, from someone using Obfuscate now, and I'm not going to answer this because I would that would be the obvious choice. So someone using Obfuscate asks you, Eddie, what, uh, because that's my choice, what Vampire <laughs> the Masquerade 5th edition book would you most like to create? Um, yeah, you weren't expecting honestly, to have to answer this one, were you? <laughs> well, yeah, but also um, it's... It, it's, it's it's a weird question because on the one hand, I, I've made a lot of 20th anniversary books and I don't want to basically say a 5th ver- edition version of a book I've already made, exactly. you know? Um, uh, but, I mean, honestly, the, I, I would love to dig into the Sabbat. Um, it, it's always been an intrigue of mine because it's, on one hand, the concept's r- really unsalvageable and all the attempts to salvage it have not necessarily been great. And I think there is something that Melling that can be pulled out of a group of extremists uh, who have found that their underlying belief is completely false, mm-hmm. and what that turns them into. Uh, I think there's a really strong, interesting, and approachable narrative, um, particularly in light of things like QAnon, where it's like, what happens when you, just this massive conspiracy theories turn out to be completely false, um, and what does that do? And what is that? How do people handle that? I think there's some really interesting stuff that could be done from that. And so this could be a great metaphor for the exploration. But, you know, 
as always, that's up to Paradox. Uh, well, and Dixie, do you have any V5 books you'd love to cover? Uh, based on the lore that's come out so far uh, for, for V5, because like, I wouldn't want to do a historical or anything, because I feel like V20 and previous books just have all that covered, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's 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 my usual answer. It's like, oh, I'll do a historical, or I'll do this. Um, but I think I would like to do either an Ashira slash Beckoning book, like what the hell's going on over there, um, or a Second Inquisition book. That would also be a, like a... It could be like Hunter 5, but also... You know what's what's going on from their perspective. Yeah. Like, are they hunting things besides vampires? Like, what 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 all do they do? Um, because I find you know supernatural research and capture groups interesting. Like, I, I once again I watch Buffy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think one of those two, based on the V five lore we have out now, would be really cool. Uh, Anna, in fact, I will answer this. Uh, so, go for my- it. Yeah, my choice would probably be to go for something a little, very much, I guess, thematic, uh, and it would be a book all about addiction, and so it mm-hmm. would cover the Vitae from the perspective of vampires who have the addiction to feeding, ghouls have the addiction to Vitae, blood dolls who have the addiction to being fed from, and mm-hmm. the way uh, the circulatory system, the Blood trafficking, human trafficking organization. I introduced into V five would well works on a grand scale. That kind of thing. I think it would be a very moody, probably quite a slim book that would have a few sort of personal tales in there that are all thoroughly depressing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I could see myself wanting to work on a book like that. Uh, so next question from Del- Devil Aether. Is is a VTT Astral Roll Twenty etc. implementation of story path systems games anywhere on the horizon? Uh, so, Eddie, the, the short answer to that is yes. And uh, by the time you're listening to this, um, we, we have already will have already dropped our virtual horror con episode where Rich actually talks about that in pretty strong detail. So, rather than answering that question again, I would say just go back to last week's episode and listen to Rich's thoughts on VTT because we talked about that for like five ten minutes. But uh, yes, definitely. Okay, so this is a question for all of us from Chris M. Tell us about how you came to be a part of Onyx Path and how you came to your current position in it, if that position has changed. Who are origin stories? We haven't done that in a while. Yeah, I mean, if you want the like long answer, you could listen to our first episode, and then I think we did it again a few a few months ago. Um. Or like for a different podcast? I don't know what what, what we've been doing. Either way. for a different podcast, yeah. Uh, long story short for me, I uh, came into this freelance editing because I knew Rose Bailey and she gave me some work and that was cool. And then when she stepped down, I took over her job um, and also became the lead editor at the same time, which is something that she was handling before anyway. Um, she just wasn't doing any in-house editing, and I do. Uh, the position hasn't really changed much for me. Um, I have, you know take it on new things here and there and drop things here and there. And we occasionally shuffle work between the three of us. Uh, but the job itself for the past three years has been pretty, pretty steady. Mm-hmm. What about you, Eddie? Um, so mine was kind of a weird twisting road. Uh, I, I actually worked with Rich at uh, CCP White Wolf. Um, and Near the end of Rich's run of that, uh, we helped form uh, what we call the Transmedia Division, which is specifically to try to do 
role-playing games, books, comic books, novels, support for EVE Online and the upcoming World Wars MMO. Um, so when Rich uh, went and joins or formed Onyx Path Publishing, uh, initially I was just his TCP contact because I mean, he already worked with me and I, I already knew what he was talking about so I could translate from publisher to video game designer as need to be. Uh, and then when I got laid off, uh, I became a consultant and it's basically I would just show up to meetings and occasionally consult and do projects here and there. Uh, and then around the time all three of us were hired, I came on board as an in-house uh, developers where now this is, we're all still freelancers, but this is my quote unquote day job. Now this is basically where the majority of my freelance time goes is to Onyx path to not only uh, consult for everybody on the team, but also to uh, manage projects in-house to be more of a producer, to make sure the developers have the resources they need and occasionally to pick up projects myself and manage and develop them. And uh, yeah, my journey saw me at first uh, a humble freelancer. I mean, I'm still a freelancer now, I guess, so we don't have exclusivity placed on us. Yeah, we all are. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so first involvement with Onyx Path uh, was as a consulting developer on Book of the Worm. Yeah, where I got to see how a book is made, basically, and I learned lots of things from Stu Wilson, the developer of that book, that were very handy for then writing a formal submission, uh, which was picked up, and I got hired as a freelance writer, then got consistently hired thereafter, then I started getting hired as a developer, uh, starting off as a co-developer, I, and I, what, what's Beckett's Jihad Diary, my first development gig? now that I come to think of it, because I was probably co-developing yes. that before I was developing something like V20 Dark Ages Companion on my own. I thought I thought Pan's Guide was your first development work. Mm, I think I started Pan's Guide after Beckett's. Oh, okay. uh, either way, either way. Um, so that's interesting, <laughs> given that Beckett's is probably the book for which I will, if I'm remembered for anything, it'll probably be that one. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, either way, so I developed books and then uh, my career trajectory changed outside of Onyx Path for various people being let go. I wanted to change pace from doing my training. I was working on video games and also on freelance writing. I wanted to do more writing and I asked Rich whether there'd be a place to do it on a more permanent basis or long-term basis. And so I had to put together a pitch for Rich that laid out exactly the kind of roles I would be doing, sort of cost justification, that kind of thing, uh, to be on as a full-time developer in-house. And initially the plan was going to be I was working alongside Rose. And uh, that plan then changed shortly after. And uh, then I... And, do correct me if I'm misremembering this, because then I was working with Eddie and then I was working with Dixie as the in-house developers. My, I think the original plan was Rose was going to be doing Chronicles while I was doing World of Darkness. but mm -hmm. And Eddie was going to be doing everything else. I think that was the original plan. Right. The way I remember it was um, when Rich was talking to you, uh, I talked to him because... Uh, Full disclosure, Rich was talking to me about my thoughts about you. And um, I was like, you know, actually, I kind of want to do a job like that too. And He's so we talked about, <laughs> right. We talked about the layout of that because initially it was to, part of it was to give Rose some breathing room because yeah. she was doing an incredibly intense amount of work. 
Um, and then Rose parted with the company very amicably. Um, and Rose recommended Dixie to fill her slot. Uh, so I think we, we all came on board officially at the same time, but I think it was kind of you came first and then I came shortly after that to kind of expand my consulting role as mm -hmm. it were. Yeah. Um, and then Dixie came in, like like she said, to fill Rose's slot. And then we sort of, okay, let's actually shuffle the work, Rose's work around a bit more. Right. Um, and and we, that's how we sorted it out. As it turned out, Rose Bailey was doing the work of three people. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. And that's why she needed to leave and work on her own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, it, 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 it's one of those things where when Onyx Path started, we were doing some of the licenses. We had a couple of our own properties we were working on. Right. But like as things like Trinity and Scion and, and, and Pugmire and they came from and, you know, Cavaliers yeah. and all that like expanded her, her workload. I don't think she even realized how much it was. Yeah. yeah. Um. So hats off to Rose Bailey because she was doing the work of three people for a minute there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, from there, being an in-house developer and uh, still do writing and now editing whenever I see fit uh, to fit in my schedule. So there you mm -hmm. go. Uh, so next question from Epsi: When will Werewolf the Forsaken get a new? Well, get a line developer, Dixie. It it technically has one, I think. Doesn't it? I was that... the last developer on Werewolf, I think, um, with Sean by the Moon. Um, but I don't think there's a specific line developer, but you can correct yeah, me if I'm wrong. Probably not. I can say uh, it would probably be Chris Allen uh, if we had Werewolf projects in the pipeline, but please refer to my first answer, re-paradox and lines and what we can and can't do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so there are some lines right now that just don't have line developers uh, per se, just because we're not developing anything for them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's kind of no point in having one. And also, um, I think it's good to kind of talk a little bit about uh, how we perceive line developers have changed over the years. True, um, true. When I first came on board, the line developer was basically the creative head of the, of the entire line. So they made all the decisions regarding the game line. They greenlit all the books they hired all the developers they didn't and most of the time they would develop most of the books themselves and a lot of times they develop all the books themselves uh so they were basically completely in control of the game line and that's just not sustainable with how many games we put out um so these days now a line developers like you said dixie is someone we've been on board to actively develop a line that's going to have that we know is going to have several books coming in close succession um and, and it, it, it's strategic like uh, a game like Scion definitely needed a line developer because there's a lot of research and uh, 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 continuity and things that have to go together to make sure that that's all cohesive and respectful and, and handled well. Mm -hmm. um, Trinity needed a line developer, which we turned into a content lead because really Ian's role is not to manage the books so much as he is our fountain of information. Um, and so he makes sure that the, the books in the Trinity book all line up and, and connect together, but also mm -hmm. deviate in interesting ways. Um, and so under Trinity, we have distinct line developers for at least our three tentpole games um, because there's a lot of backstory and continuity and addition stuff that we have to keep in mind. Um, whereas Anima, which I'm working on now, we're probably never going to have a line developer for Anima because we don't know how many books we're going to make for Anima yet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Pungmire technically as line developer, which is me, but also I own it, so it's not quite the same thing either. Uh, Eddie, Matthew, you're, you're, you're Hog and Pugmire. It's true. It's all mine. No one you can touch it. I mean, that's the advantage of owning it. It's like, <laughs> fuck off. Get up, get up my dog. 
Um, but like technically speaking, in the world of darkness, none of the Warner's games have a line developer right now. It's all Matthew. Matthew's kind of the Ursat's line developer for Whoa, World uh, Darkness uh, as a whole. Well, that's um, uh, it's, um, to go into World of Darkness a little. Uh, so for a long time, so Mage the Ascension is a really good example of this because mm. Mage is very closely associated with one of our frequent colleagues, uh, Satiros Phil Bracato. And we all love Phil and we all love Phil's work. And yet there is the issue where these projects can get bottlenecked if they are all left with one person. Not because it's particularly slow, uh, but because... It's a knowledge issue. Um, and I can absolutely see where this issue came from. So if you give Satir a book and he gets through it and then you give him the next project and he gets through that, all of the meta plot knowledge, all the rules knowledge and so on ends up with one person, which in, mm-hmm. one, in one theory is a good idea because it means you're getting this expanding bank of information, you're making one person valuable. But on the other, it means that if that person is ever unavailable, or if they can't commit this time that's needed to a specific project, you become a bit stuck because you have relied so heavily on one person. And mm-hmm. so that's why on a lot of the recent books, uh, Satyr is still involved. He's a writer, but we're mm-hmm. shifting out uh, developers. So, for instance, on M20 Victorian Age, we've got uh, Ian uh, A.A. Watson and we've got Chris Allen. And on Technocracy, we've had, well, on Mage Books recently, we've had uh, Travis Legg, uh, we've had uh, Danielle Lauzon, we've had Steffi Devan. Uh, upcoming books, we've got, well, we've got Lauren Roy on Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic. Uh, we have uh, Michael Barker, who's a new developer with us. Uh, and yeah, so the idea being that disseminating the knowledge actually not only keeps the games fresh, because you can start to return to the well if you're relying on the same developer over and over again. But Mm -hmm. it also means you don't end up trapped five years down the line and entirely reliant on one person delivering, because that can completely paralyze a line, uh, or at least for a long time. So, yeah. Right, exactly. For me, the kind of the metric is if um, there's going to be a lot of books coming out and... Uh, in a relatively short order, we need someone to just make sure that those books don't overlap or contradict or, 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 or run into each other. Um, and honestly, with the licensed games, we don't really need a line developer for that because we have a licensed mm-hmm. partner who yeah. usually covers a lot of that. So, I mean, you know, Paradox is going to have a stronger say than any line developer we could bring in for a World Darkness game. So. True, yeah. Okay. Oh. Uh, yes, so let's move on. Uh, so I'm going to skip the next question for the last oh, one because I know okay. it's very it's the one very close <laughs> to your heart. <laughs> we are getting near the end of our recording, so we'll have well, to save some of these for long, another one. Yeah, how long you need to rant about that one? Uh, <laughs> uh, so now it's the pick your favorite child from Weird Hamster who asks all of us, "What is your favorite Onyx Path and Partners game, and why?" So Dixie. I hate, and why is it I hate this question so much. I'm 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 gonna answer this, but I'm gonna put like 18 caveats in place. Um because like you, you can't add like if you if, if you ask me what my favorite book is, right? There's like a top ten, and it's because it depends on my mood and what I want to read at the time. Right. Same yep. with movies. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have one favorite movie because sometimes I'm in the mood to watch Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette and sometimes I'm in the mood to watch The Avengers, you know? They're just completely different things. Um, that's 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 why picking a, a favorite anything is hard. Like, say, what's, what's, what's your favorite food? Well, today it's nachos, but tomorrow it might be sushi, you know? Right. Um, so that's, that's how I feel is I, I feel like I always have to give like five answers to this question because like, what's my favorite, you know, lighter game that we do? It's the game from what's my favorite, you know, D&D-esque or fantasy game we do? It's probably Pugmire. Mm. Like what's my favorite horror game we do? Uh, probably Changeling the Lost, but I also really love B5. So it's like, it, it depends on what mood I'm in and, and what kind of themes I want in a game. Well, no, I think that's a good answer. And what about you, Eddie? Do you have a favorite? Um, I mean, honestly, a lot of my caveats map to Dixie's. Um, uh, like, uh, for a long time, I didn't really want to play World Darkness games because I was really burned out of them. I had worked on them for right. a decade solid. And I was just like, I intellectually enjoy the games, but I need a minute. And it's like for three years, I just didn't really play them or engage with them. Um, and on the other hand... Obviously, my favorite game is going to be Pokemon because that, that's my heart on game? The page. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 my love letter for my dog's past and presence for the past five years. Of course, I'm going to love that game. Um, but I mean, after that, it gets muddy because, frankly, my favorite game is the 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 latest game that's come under my nose on my desk. You know? Yeah, like I I love anima. I love exalted essence. Like what what else mm-hmm. have I worked on recently? You know, right? Like, I like games and I like variety, and we make a variety of games. And, and uh, there's been plenty of times where I've been like, okay, I'm really in my own game, working on my own stuff, and then like, oh, the Victorian, uh, sorry, Mage the Extension 20th Anniversary Edition Victorian Age, uh, <laughs> as is properly known um, <laughs> Victorian Mage uh, had, you know I didn't really know much about it. I knew what was happening but I didn't really know much about it and then we started talking about it and you know I read the Indiegogo page and seeing stuff and I was like this thing looks really cool and I'm really excited about this and of course I'm a huge fan of the Victorian Age from my love of Victorian literature so it's like I would love to play this right now um, but then you know also later on I'll, I'll go back to Trinity Course like, oh, I love Trinity Course so I mean it's it's not a, a corporate answer in a sense of, of course, all of our games are great. And it's really just, if it was a bad game or a game we didn't like, we probably wouldn't make it. Um, right? There are a couple of games that aren't to my taste. I mean, like, I intellectually I mean, yeah. understand the appeal of Exalted, but it's probably not my cup of tea. Um, but it doesn't make me less excited for Exalted Essence. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I would love that slice of it. And I'm just going to be very boring and say that my favourite Onyx Path and Partners game is, at this time, uh, with all arrogance, not just implied but directly stated, uh, they came from beyond the grave uh, because I've had so much fun running it at various different levels of tone, uh, both horrific and comedic, and it works really well. Mm-hmm. And that, again, not to say I dislike any of our other games. There are some games I like more than others just because they appeal to me. But uh, They Came From Beyond the Other Grave is, my, is the thing I have most enjoyed working on and playing with in the last uh, few years. And uh, I'm really, really happy with They Came From Camp Murder Lake. So, yeah. No, totally. Uh, but at the same time, like, the classified game that we haven't announced yet for they came from 
I also really love what we're doing with that too. Yeah, right? as, as I run more of that, and I uh, have for some NDA sessions, uh, I am sure that may may come to supplant Beyond the Grave. I don't know. I don't know because big fan of the subject matter of Beyond the Grave, and while I'm also a big fan of the subject matter of classified horror and Hammer horror and slasher movies, I know that's your sweet spot. Out. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so we come back round. Now, we haven't answered all of your questions, listeners, and that's fine because this episode has spun by so quickly. Uh, yeah. And I feel like we've enjoyed ourselves answering these that we will reopen the mailbag <laughs> and uh, also get to the other questions next time. Why not? Um, but in the meantime, we have one last question for this episode. The most important and question I want to is, This is definitely the most important question we have been asked ever. Yes! Yeah. I, I hope you're still listening at this point, Rich, because this should determine various things about how we go forward with 2021. <laughs> so, this one is from Chaos RCTM. And uh, I, actually, I guess you could pronounce it Chaos Rectum. I'm trying not to, in my head, pronounce it that way. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> that makes this question even worse. So, Dixie from Chaos Rectum is. is Too bad you right out. Is hot dog. Is hot dog a sandwich as it's just some meat between bread? Uh, no, first of all. Um, <laughs> so, for the record, I have a long history with this question. Uh, when I was working at the comic shop in like 2015, 2016, this, this meme first kind of became a thing, right? Like, is, is X a sandwich? Um, and my coworker Zane, who I love to death, uh, is a is a, a a grumpy curmudgeonly man, um, very sarcastic, very funny, and he hated this. He hated that we were talking about everything as if it were a sandwich. So my coworker Sarah and I, because we were very trolly, um, oh. would talk about like we we would try to think up reasons why anything could be a sandwich, right? <laughs> like, oh, a sandwich is just any filling between. Like a a layer of carbs, so technically a ravioli is a sandwich, um, and a dumpling <laughs> is a sandwich. Uh, but we were just doing that to be trolly, right? Because right. like then, like we would define anything we could as a sandwich just to fuck with Zane. Um, we even had a song to the tune of "Rhythm as a Dancer," where we'd be like, "Pizza is a sandwich, dumplings are a sandwich, pop tarts are a sandwich." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So yeah. we would do that just, just, just to be annoying. However, since then, <laughs> I have chosen to subscribe to the cube rule of food, and therefore a hot dog is a taco. Because uh, the cube rule of food <laughs> states that if there's only one, like, it's, it's, you identify the food based on the starch location. So mm. there's only one starch on the bottom, as in pizza or what have you, it's, it's toast. Okay? Okay. If there's starch on the top and bottom, it's a sandwich. If there's starch on... Both sides and the bottom, it's a taco. Okay. If there's starch in a square around a filling, it's sushi. Okay. Um, if it is uh, essentially a box with no top, it's a uh, soup and salad with bread bowl. And if it is completely coated, it's a calzone. Like if a starch complete, so so like dumplings are a calzone unless they're the dumplings that are open on top, and then they're a soup with bread bowl. So a uh, corn dog would be a calzone. Yes, yes, a corn dog is a calzone. Okay. Although you could argue that once you've bitten the top of the corn dog off, it becomes sushi. 
or a super bread bowl. You'd have to bite it all the way along the top. That would be a strange way of eating it, wouldn't it? So, so, so sandwiches and starch-based food could actually transition states like liquid and gas? Yeah, like as, as, as you're eating it. Um, for, for instance, if you have a slice of pizza and you fold it in half, is it now a sandwich or is it a taco, actually? Maybe. It would, it would be like, or like if you have an open-faced sandwich, it becomes toast. Yeah, exactly. Well, I feel like we're kind of stepping into Franz Kafka's metamorphosis at this point. <laughs> uh, at what point does a sandwich stop being a sandwich? And But I, I appreciate the amount of time you have you've dedicated to this in the preceding years. I guarantee Chaos Rectum didn't anticipate this. <laughs> also, raviolis are just tiny calzones. Which makes me very happy. Hmm. Mini calzone. Just little uh, little see, tiny baby calzones. See, there there is something there, there's something deep inside that uh, that uh, that revolts against your supposition. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you don't, I don't have know. to subscribe to the cube rule of food. I just do. Well, exactly, and but but this is why um, fr- why friendly debate exists, and yet I know we're also over an hour, so I'm just struggling. I'm really struggling with the idea of ravioli as a calzone, and I I worry that this <laughs> will linger with me now for the next week until we record again. Well, <laughs> if you want, you can switch the words calzone and ravioli, and instead a calzone is just a large ravioli that's been baked. Hmm. That's is that better? Well, let's see what happens if I actually bake a ravioli and if it becomes a calzone. Baked ravioli does... is delicious. No, not if you yeah. just stick a single small ravioli on a tin, because this is how, <laughs> how I'm thinking of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking lab conditions, no trimmings, nothing like that. And uh, is it a calzone without... Ah no, this is too much, too much, too. Uh, I can this no longer. Is, you are you are going through the exact same emotional arc that we put Zane through five years ago at the comic <laughs> shop. Yeah, where he would just get so frustrated with us because we were just like a sadist making everything a sandwich. <laughs> so, so what I'm hearing is that we should separately conduct our own scientific research and come up, bring our results back to the podcast. <laughs> Well, yeah, the question for me is at what stage does said ravioli become a calzone to my satisfaction? How long does it have to be baked? Does it have to be crispy around the edges? Uh, <laughs> can it just be warm throughout? I don't know, but now I need to, to find out. So, to be clear, the, the, the cube rule is primarily for identifying the the primary starch placement. There can be substates within a cube state that allows for gradations of classification. Well, this is Heston Blumenthal-style bakery now, where we're thinking, <laughs> okay, well, this meal contains several different meals. Willy Wonka, you know, the snozberries taste like snozberries and it's everlasting bubblegum. I'm done with this episode. And would like to ask... Matthew just uh, rage quit digression. I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, so, Dixie, uh, if people would like to question you about the nature of sandwiches and their variants, where would they go? They can find me at Dixie Cyanide on pretty much all social media. And what about you, Eddie, uh, if they wanted to ask you about sandwiches, uh, dogs, or Transformers? Um, you could find me at pugsteady.com, which will now correctly take you to all of my social media accounts. 
and they can find me on matthewdawkins.com. Do not ask me any questions about sandwiches. And uh, you can find all of us on theonyxpath.com, where we update our product lists every single Monday night, and we release something new every single Wednesday. Do stop over on the Onyx Path Discord, which is linked below, because we are all on there talking about our games and answering questions about them. And with that said, many words. Oh.